0: Hey, this is Pastor Brad at Garden City Church. I just wanted to say thank you for coming into this space and listening to our podcast. You know, our desire as a church is that we would learn how to love and lead like Jesus because we believe that he knows how to love people best and how to lead people best. If you'd like to know more information about who we are as a church, you can visit GardenCityBMT.com. God bless and have a great day. Well, it's exciting to start a new series, but it's also depressing when you read uh, uh, some verses like that. It's like, okay, exiles, great. Okay, what what are we getting at? Um, My message title for today is called Welcome to Babylon. And I think that there's a prophetic tie into that in so much that when we look at the book of Daniel and we see some of the overlying themes of that book, um, we see a level of prophecy We see a level of um, dedication to the Lord and it can sometimes freak us out a little bit when we look at the book of Daniel. I mean, there, there is a literal chapter on the literal hand of God riding on a wall and it freaks everybody out like, yeah, who wouldn't be tripped out by that? Or a dude thrown into a lion's den like ready to just be, uh, eaten for breakfast by these lions. there are these men who don't stand when they should. And so that was kind of this, this theme. When we see the book of Daniel, those, those events immediately come to mind. And we try to put ourselves in that perspective when in reality there are times when we shouldn't insert ourselves where we don't belong in scripture. But what we do is we insert Jesus into these moments because we want him to be the hero of our story and not ourselves. And so when we look at this and we say welcome to Babylon, it almost feels as if the America that we are living in today feels like Babylon. Whether you disagree with that statement or not, I think that there are some realities to be shared with in this introduction to the book of Daniel. Now, going into this book, I, um, I hesitated, I'll admit to you, about doing this book because there are some ties in between what we see here in scripture and a lot of what we could seem to look at in our culture today, and it's a very sensitive subject for a lot of people. And what happens when we look at scripture in this way, there are things that are happening in our culture that weren't happening 10 years in the church. We are in a much different church today than we were 10 years ago. We are seeing something known as the post-Christian culture where early on in the 60s and 70s and 80s, we saw this pre-Christian world in a sense where there was this movement and there were these people who were coming to Christ and they were welcoming the gospel into the schools and into government and into education. And now it's like we can't find God in any of those things. How do we live in this world? Evangelism then was something to be excited about and evangelism today is something that a lot of Christians fear. I don't know for you growing up, but if you were ever ever picked last in the game of uh, dodgeball or basketball or something like that on the playground when you were a kid, and you were always picked last, maybe that's something that is familiar to you. Maybe you were forced into a class that you didn't wanna have, like theater, because you needed an elective class in order to graduate. That was very specific because that was my situation. I was forced into a theater drama class, and I'm not a drama guy anyway. Maybe you were someone who uh, you are a perfectionist and you, because you missed that one letter in the Spelling Bee Championship in second grade, the rest of your life kind of was like unfolded from that moment. Maybe you were the scrawny kid growing up and everyone used to pick on you because you were the toothpick and you were just easy, uh, an easy target. Maybe you were the nerd and you were the guy with a, you know, the, the pocket square and your, you know, the, the glasses with the tape around it. Like There's nothing wrong with that. But what we see... And we identify is that these moments can shape how we project the course of our life. Our childhood experiences can carry into adulthood. Because you were picked last in the game, it caused you to have this determination to work harder than everyone else so that you would eventually be picked first for things. You became an influencer. Because you were forced into a theater class, you were determined to adapt and to become more outgoing mainly because I needed the grade, but it also caused in me to become somewhat of an extrovert. Because you missed one letter in the Spelling Bee Championship, you were determined to never miss a letter in any word ever again, which is how you became the perfectionist you are today. Because you were the scrawny kid, you worked out harder than anyone else at the gym, you were there every day, and even though you may have skipped leg day, as most meatheads do, you never skipped shoulders, triceps, or biceps. You became a motivator, Because you were the nerd, you went to great lengths to change your look and your demeanor. You talked differently, you walked differently, you traded in your glasses for contacts, you became popular. So now, if you fit the criteria for any of these things or something similar, you will most likely deal with everything else in the same manner. In your marriage, you will handle arguments in this way. In your parenting, you will handle discipline in this way. In your career field, you will handle conflict in this way, and in your education, you will handle learning in this way. There's this physiological thing that happens in our brain to which it then sends signals to the rest of our body to respond to things according to how our brain is wired and how we experienced things as a kid. And even childhood trauma can unfortunately create mental instability, misinformed sexuality, and even shallow relationships. To no fault of your own, It can feel like the future is bleak and the purpose of your life has gone out the window. Thankfully, there is a God in heaven who loves you so much that Jesus came to this world willingly giving up of his body and perfectly knowing that a people could not save them from themselves. He stepped in to save us with his strong arm. And even though he received no justice from earthly authorities, he sustained the justice from the Father in heaven. Three days later, we know the story. He rose from the grave, marking the victory over sin and death. And the Bible says that he ascended. He went to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, which signifies the right to rule the world and to allow humanity to share in that with him one day in his kingdom. We can rejoice in this story because even though we have projected this desire of wanting to live up to culture's expectations Of us, we've grown weary at doing good because we wonder how much is it really making a difference. Culture pushes their agenda onto us and the sad reality of that is we have allowed culture and society to subliminally hijack our Christianity. It was the rapper Lecrae who said, if you live for the approval of people, you will die by the rejection of people. And so it's how we view this culture and in this cultural moment, will help us determine how we deal with the people around us. What I'm about to say will lead us through the rest of this series over the next few months through this book. And it will be something we are reminded of each week. Because if we believe that we are living in the promised land, we will treat everyone on the outside as a threat. But if we believe that we are in Babylon, we will treat everyone on the outside with compassion. It's hard to decipher how we are handling this cultural moment because there's so much happening so fast. As we meet on this date in history, there are many people who showed up in church that you wouldn't normally see in church. Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the attack on the World Trade Center from 9-11. Some of you weren't even born yet. Some of you had to hear about it in a history book. I was 12 years old and I was at home when my dad got a phone call from a friend telling him you gotta turn the TV on and watching it unfold and to see that take place. And it was from that terrorist attack on September 11th, 2001, that sent the world into a spiral of confusion and fear and it was 9-11 that caused many to think the end of the world was not near but was now here. On that day, 2,977 lives were lost, many unanswered questions. Many people started coming to church to find answers as to why this was happening, but it soon dissolved once it became apparent that the world wasn't actually coming to an end. We are fascinated with this idea of apocalyptic literature and fantasy. If you think about some of the best-selling books or even some of these movies that have come out, it is no surprise that it is centered on an end of the world scenario, whether to make fun of it or to joke about it, or to actually see what could potentially happen. And some of these movies have created these apocalyptic scenarios where it's like, that could actually happen. Like for that movie, Contagion, when COVID first hit. If you ever saw that movie, Contagion, it was like, that's a little scary to how true this is. Or The Walking Dead. I'm not really sure if like zombies are a thing, but maybe it could happen, I'm not sure. Um, it was good for the first few seasons and then it just got dumb afterwards. Uh, Planet of the Apes, Like that was another thing. Like, You know, we do all this like biochemical things to to monkeys in the labs, of course, one's gonna get out and take over the world because that's everyone's desire is for power. Or World War Z was another one, like people freaked out about, like that could actually happen. Or I Am Legend with Will Smith, that could actually happen. Like those are the things that we, that we are obsessed with, yet we don't want to admit at times because it sounds like I'm some doomsday preparer, and if you're that, God bless you, like I would love to visit your bunker one day to see what you've done with it because I don't have the space or the capacity to do something like that, and I think it's fascinating when people People can make these bunkers, which they also call their man cave. Let's be honest about what is actually going on in those bunkers, playing video games and watching football. Welcome to week one of the NFL, apparently. The book of Daniel is, however, then filled with several familiar scenes. They feel apocalyptic. They feel like end of the world things are going to happen from the lion's den, the fiery furnace, the handwriting on the wall. But do we understand the main point of the book of Daniel? Perhaps no other book in the Old Testament is more explicit about the coming Messiah and the role of God and his people in the world. And the reason I talked about being obsessed with this apocalyptic idea is because as soon as we see the book of Daniel and we see this Babylon, we see these kings ruling, we're like, this is, this is America, like, welcome, this is it, this is how it is. But in actuality, the book of Daniel is pointing us to Jesus, Because regardless of what happens in America, regardless of what happens in Russia and all these other places, we are focused in on the coming Messiah, not just his first coming that ushered in his death and resurrection, but the second coming where Jesus is here to stay. And so here are a few thoughts on the book of Daniel as we look at this. When Babylon is mentioned in the Bible, our first thoughts are generally negative. You think of Babylon because of the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis, The Babylonians were the people at the Tower of Babel who created this giant tower. And they said, because we want to be as close to God as we can, we're going to build a tower as high as possible. And it was in that place where the Tower of Babel came crushing down, and God sent a a weird language barrier over a lot of different people and dispersed them because of their self righteousness. Welcome to Babylon. We might recall the ungodly aspirations of those people who built the Tower of Babel. We might think of Babylon in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, where it becomes the prophet's preferred term for speaking of God's judgment. Revelation 14 tells us that there is another angel, a second following, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. We read in Psalm 137, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, when we remembered Zion, but we have to also remember that there's imagery attached to reality. There is not this actual physical Babylon that Revelation is talking about. It's a much different thing. And when we get to Revelation down the road at some point in the future, whenever that is, we'll get to talk about that a little bit more. But despite these verses, there is another way to understand Babylon that I think would better inform us of our reading in the book of Daniel. The words of the prophet Jeremiah shows here in Jeremiah 29 that the negative perspective on Babylon, while it's not entirely wrong, is actually incomplete. There's another prophecy, you can read it later, in Jeremiah 51 that talks about this idea of the uniqueness of God's plan for Babylon during Daniel's exile. Other theologians have said that there is an easy way of missing God's plan of Babylon and Daniel's exile. So referring back to our earlier reading in Jeremiah 29, the last line is important. It says that God wants prayers made on behalf of Babylon because he intends to bless it while God's people are at home there. And by blessing Babylon, God intends to provide for the welfare of his own people And so the evidence throughout the book of Daniel shows not only Daniel's heart for the king, but it shows God's heart for the king. And it is this, that the king would come to know God and that the rest of the nation would be blessed. It is a kingdom, hopefully, with Daniel and God as a leverage of knowing that there's a need for compassion. When we see the dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar in the next few chapters, in the next few weeks... With Jeremiah's prophecy in mind, it demonstrates that God has a message for the world as well as a desire to bring salvation to those who dwell there. And so it's in this place where we read about Daniel and his buddies who are coming into exile. It's being in exile. Because can you imagine for a moment a foreign empire attacking your city, arresting many of the city's people and then deporting them to a faraway place? That's what happened in Jerusalem. Babylonian troops marched into the city, humiliated the Jews, they chained up many of them, took them off to be slaves, and many of these captives were very young, including Daniel and his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These young dudes were around 13 to 14 years old, and they were being groomed into a way where they could eventually become the authority figures in the city of Babylon. Babylon. And so the goal of the Babylonians was to convert young men like Daniel to become a Babylonian. They wanted these men to talk and to dress and to eat and to worship and to think like a Babylonian. They wanted them to forget about their homeland and their people and to give their loyalty to Babylon and her king, Nebuchadnezzar. And we know that Daniel and his friends would serve their captors diligently. Interesting. But they would not be converted. They would remain Jews, loyal to their God of heaven, even in their days of exile. And so the stories about Daniel and his friends, which we will start with seeing next week, gave the Jews a model of exactly how we should behave while living under a government. Like Esther and Mordecai, these young men lived according to the exile ethic. Daniel and his friends, they worked hard. They served their captors. They served without sedition or rebellion. They were above reproach. Even their worst enemies struggled to find fault in them. They were respectful and submissive to the rulers over them. However, their true loyalty was to God, and they would often disobey the laws of Babylon or Persia in order to be loyal to their covenant with God. They accepted the penalty for their disobedience, even if it was death, even if it meant imprisonment, because they trusted in God's power to save. The first six chapters are different examples when this, when this ethic of exile was lived out by Daniel and his friends and how every single time God delivered them. That's a major theme in this book that God delivers those who humbly trust him. And so we recognize that even in exile, when it feels like there is a foreign authority or a foreign government or a king over these people, that ultimately God is in charge. Daniel served multiple rulers of Babylon, and most of them he didn't even agree with. Then Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians, and Daniel served multiple Medo-Persian rulers. He saw kings at the height of their glory and power, but he was also able to see when they were humbled and brought to their knees. In the visions he experienced, Daniel saw even more kingdoms and rulers rise and fall. And in symbolic images, he saw the rise of rulers like Alexander the Great, Antiochus, Epiphanes, and the Roman emperors. He knew they would do great and terrible things on the earth. But the most important part of everything Daniel witnessed was that the God of heaven was in charge of it all. Every beastly empire would have to answer to God. God allowed them to rise and to serve his purposes, but then he would bring them all to account Because every evil deed, every injustice, every drop of blood spilled would be brought before the throne of God and he would judge righteously. And it's in this truth that God is in charge of kings and kingdoms. It would be of great comfort to us, a people, and a great comfort to Daniel and his friends as they were living under this oppressive time for hundreds and hundreds of years to come. Which then brings in the Messiah's kingdom. God showed Daniel a secret, a promise, if you will, that he would eventually send a king to establish a kingdom that would last forever, a kingdom that would never fall. This kingdom would start small, but eventually it would fill the entire earth. This kingdom would smash to pieces all the other kingdoms of the earth, and it alone would stand forever with the Son of Man as its king. Daniel and those like him, exiled and dispersed throughout the world would have to be faithful and patient, waiting for God's coming deliverance. But just as God delivered his, his people from Egypt, he would deliver this exiled people. He would forgive their sins. He would establish his kingdom. He would judge every kingdom of the earth, raise the dead, and be with his people forever. And it is for us today to remember that we are living as exiles in this world. Though the Messiah has come and has finished his work and his rule has been established, we continue to live, as the Bible says, as exiles, as aliens, as sojourners in the kingdoms of men. We must continue to wait and to be faithful. We must continue to strive to live out our lives above reproach. We must not fear death. We must give our allegiance only to our king and his kingdom. For us, in the English-speaking West, this world has tended to feel very much like home, and our treasures have been right before our eyes. Perhaps it is only in the last few years in the United States that we have finally faced that what the Bible says is true. In this world, we truly are sojourners and exiles, from 1 Peter two eleven, That reality has been clouded and obscured by the size and the legal protection of the church in most of the Western world, but this world if you remember, is not actually our home. We're not supposed to settle down here. We're not supposed to expect the church to be large and influential and respected. Christians are increasingly going to be seen as different and not in a good way. We are increasingly going to have to choose between obedience or comfort. The next decades will not bring apathy to the gospel, but antagonism. And that's okay because after all there has been this reality before and for most of God's people through most of history. In this sense as we move ahead in time we're going back to the world of the first century church and back even further to Babylon of the exiles. And so we have many lessons from early Christians and from men like Daniel and his friends to glean from. When we think of drawing inspiration in this post-Christian world from the book of Daniel, our minds perhaps instinctively, like we talked already, turn to the fiery furnace or the lion's den or the riding on the wall. But even before any of those events happened, there is rich truth for our time today in the dream that God gives the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. And he enables his godly servant Daniel to interpret, for here is a lesson about what the church is and what the great empires and nations of the world are. So here's the main thing and the plain thing. Human history is under the control of God, and he has a purpose that will be achieved. The message of the dream was for the young exile as much as for the apparently all powerful king as well. God would replace every kingdom and bring into being his everlasting kingdom. And so this must become for us a confidence builder, For us, too, that God is God, he is in control, and his kingdom has no rivals. We have seen more than Daniel could. We know the name of the rock. We can look back in history and around in our world and see how the rock became a mountain. Yet we find ourselves complaining about everything, looking back to the good old days, and worrying that the church won't survive even the most aggressively secular empire in this post-Christian world. But as Alistair Begg puts it so well, too much of the public face of evangelicalism is characterized by angry venting or panicking. We must rather then turn to prayerful, humble, calm, and confident belief in a sovereign God who is in control of all things. And so we see in this book of Daniel, too, we ask ourselves this question how will we handle the onset of persecution? I don't think that we are in a level of persecution right now. I think that we have cultural pressures that we are experiencing. I think persecution looks a lot like what's happening in China, where people are having to literally dig underground so that they can meet in a church. How will we handle the loss of our jobs on account of our Christian faith? How will we handle the closing of public worship? Will we give up? Will we grow a defeatist mentality, or will we grow angry, or will we prayerfully, humbly, calm, and confident believe in a sovereign God who is in control of all things. So now, not if we remember that God is God, if we remember that he is in control and that his kingdom ultimately knows no rival, we will allow ourselves to be in the proper place positionally in our world. Alistair Begg continues about this thought of evangelicalism, and he says in the 1920s, Lord Wreath who helped establish the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. He served as, as its first director general, and he was somewhat of a severe man from Scotland. As the BBC began to be carried along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 1960s, a young producer stood up in a meeting and said to Reith that the world was changing and that the BBC did not continue, did not need to continue with its religious programming. People were no longer interested in religion, he said, and the church was becoming increasingly obsolete. To which Reith, who was six foot six, stood up to this young man to take his seat, and he stood up and said, the church will always stand at the grave of the BBC. And you know what, it will. It will stand when the BBC, when CNN, when Fox News, when everything else will dwindle and die, God's kingdom will stand when every organization and institution and empire meets its end. So then how should I live? How should I live in this world? If the world is increasingly against Christ, that's how we have to answer this question. How should I then live? You live either by obedience or you live by the comfort and the convenience. The answer is you should give yourself to the church. As you drive to meet with the household of God on this Sunday, you may pass hundreds of houses where people give no thought to what you are doing, except politely to derail it. It may feel little, but God's kingdom is unsmashable, and it has an embassy in your neighborhood that we call the church. So don't be discouraged as you meet. Don't be distraught over dwindling numbers or a more and more hostile media. Instead, commit to the church. Serve the church family, give yourself to it, because when the Lord builds his church, maybe not necessarily in number, but hopefully and prayerfully in maturity, Through our labors, through our gifts, through our giving, we are being used to build the only kingdom that will last forever. There is nothing coming next. So give your best to this kingdom. It might feel small, but it is never in vain. For this kingdom is eternal and it is God. So we don't panic, we don't vent. We enjoy a deep confidence, even as the tides seem to run against our faith. God is God, he is in control, and his kingdom is and his church no no rival. This cultural moment in America is what we would call post-Christian, that America has moved away from its fundamental principles of allowing the practice of following Jesus to be a public practice rather than trying to force it to become privatized. America has progressively rejected Christianity not only in terms of the formal influence of the church in public life, but also in terms of any perceived positive cultural contribution of Christian faith. With a few exceptions, it is now not a cultural advantage to be known as a Christian or to engage in God-like things in our society, but rather it is a positive hindrance according to this world that we communicate with God and we tell others to fall in line. It's a very hostile word to say fall in line because it's not this dictatorship God is not saying that you must live like this and you must obey, although he does say that. It's not the regime that our mind immediately goes to. Because when we think dictator, we think someone who is forcing me into something that I shouldn't be forced into. When Christ does not force you into anything, he says that he knocks at the door and he's waiting for you to open it. And so we cannot come into this mentality thinking that the church is going to lose or that God will not win. Lord, what happened this last election? Lord, what happened in the last five years? We can't ask ourselves those questions because they don't matter. The cultural narrative believes that the church is in decline when in reality, the church will always be moving forward. It is the gates of hell that cannot prevail against the church. It's like ice in the veins, the gospel thrives under pressure. The church comes in clutch in the most difficult moments. As the church, we must face these realities together and seek God together for faith to respond in our generation with the same countercultural combination of humility and of boldness and an expectation of the manifestation of God's presence in our life. And it's something that not only characterized the early church, but it also sent revival in other periods of renewal and vitality. So if this cultural moment's crisis is to become an opportunity, this is the space we must occupy. Whatever your beliefs about certain cultural events is not how the church unites itself. There's a term that has been adopted, a phrase to describe this accelerated, complex culture, that's marked by unlimited access. If you need anything in the world, what do you do? Hey Siri, do this. Hey Google, hey whatever other things are out there. Duck, duck, go if that's your thing. You're marked by this unlimited access to anything and everything in the world, right at your fingertips. You hold it in your pocket, you get it out. I don't know the answer to that actually. You look it up, boom, there it is. Like It's not even an information that creates transformation, it's just an information so that I can actually perceive others that I am this person who's got it all together. And so as this complex culture is marked by this unlimited access, by this profound alienation, and in a crisis of authority, it's been called as uh, the digital Babylon. The digital Babylon. This group known as Barna, they do statistics on church, on culture. They're trying to see the trends that are happening now that are going to shape culture, and society in the coming years. And so they, they uh, list four exile groups in this digital Babylon, much like the four young men in the book of Daniel that reside in the actual Babylon. These reside in the digital Babylon. You have the prodigals, the nomads, the habitual churchgoers, and the resilient disciples. And this recent data shows that the church dropout rate is among, has risen among this group of Gen X, millennial, boomer, Gen Z, from 59% to 64% in the last 10 years. As more and more young adults leave the church with no plan to return, it's no surprise that only 10% of Christian 20-somethings can be called disciples of Christ. The pages of scripture and human history suggest that there are times when faith is at the center of society and times when faith is pushed to the margins. So this transition that we are in now, according to this Barna data, shows that there's a transition from faith at the center where there is now faith in the margins. It's happening now in North America and other societies in the cultural West right now. It shows widespread top to bottom changes from a Christianized to a post-Christian society. It's the power of screens, they continued that says in the lives of teens and young adults is incalculable. Even using conservative estimates, the typical young person spends nearly 20 times more hours per year using screen-driven media than taking in spiritual content. For the typical young churchgoer, the ratio is still more than 10 times as much cultural content as spiritual intake. And one reason they have come to a conclusion with is that even the most committed Christian families are busier than ever and thus attend church less frequently youth group used to used to serve as a main social outlet for teenagers but it is being replaced by sports and social media the number of hours connected learning and be discipled in a close-knit church community is now a drop of water in the ocean of content pouring out of their screens all the all the families in here are like no screen time today Uh uh-uh give me your phone we're shutting it down Young Christians who against the cultural odds are deepening their commitment, however, to Christ and his church. These resilient disciples exemplify this kind of discipleship that flourishes in this digital Babylon. And so to call something a digital Babylon, they say, comes from the real Babylonian reign, the one we will come into knowing more about in the next few months. Because for myself as a pastor, I can't make disciples only in delivering a sermon for 40 minutes, You'll go home, you'll watch the news, you'll listen to a podcast, you'll talk to your neighbors about this, this, and this, and you'll come to church for an hour, maybe two hours at a time, depending on how long the pastor continues to teach, and you find yourself listening to a sermon for 40 minutes, that is not enough to shape your Christian perspective on what's happening in the world. What's happening in this digital Babylon, in this post-Christian world, is that people are coming to church with these already preconceived ideas of what they need to hear from the pastor in order to stay in that church. And when they don't find that from that pastor, see ya, I'm gonna go to the dude who's got 20,000 people down the street. Because clearly he's got something else going on that this doesn't have here. Because what has happened in this post-Christian church culture is we view numbers as a measure of success. Well, clearly they're doing something great. Have you seen their social media lately? Ooh, man, their their page is rocking. They got 20,000 people on that page. Okay, great, like, awesome, good for them. Whoop-dee-doo, congratulations, you want an award? Like, if you find the amount of people that I have been able to talk to over the last few years who are looking for the small church, they're looking for that gathering, Because what the mega church has done, and there's nothing against that. I come from a mega church. I believe in the work that they've done. It shaped my life as a pastor today. I'm not discrediting the size of a church. I'm discrediting the reality of what does health actually look like. And so, in our context, the amount of young people I've talked to have said that they will not go to a church if it has this flashy. What, in their words, what does it say? Um, This is from one person I talked to a few months ago. A flashy production piece of religion. They don't want this like fog machine like, (laughs) like we're not going to a rave on Sunday mornings. Like you can go and do that Saturday nights and then repent on Sundays from what you did on Saturday. (laughs) The reality of the church is that what they're looking for and even lines up with this digital Babylon statistic by the Barna Group is that young adults And teenagers are not looking for some flashy production thing. In fact, it says that they're looking for honesty and authenticity. That's interesting. That young people all things. You think, we got to reach the next generation. What do we do? Let's have pizza every Sunday, which is not a good idea. (laughs) It sounds like a good idea, but it's not. In doing 15 years of youth ministry myself, I have come to realize that the things that I thought mattered didn't actually matter. We would have jumpers. We would do the dodgeball thing. We'd have the overnighters. I hated those. Like being at church, I'm just being honest with you. Like I hated those things. Like being overnight at a church for 12 hours with those stinky boys and girls. Like I'm not sure what that did for their church life. Although I know that there were great discipleship moments in them because I heard that there were. But you know what? a lot of these kids would leave the church because they were in their youth group, they felt ostracized from big church, right? You ever heard that? Like, oh, I don't, I don't go to big church, that's scary. Like, they came to youth group, and then when they left the church, did their whole thing in the world, filled it up with materialism, a lot like the prodigal, they came back to the youth group because that was their church. And they would come to me 10 years later, hey, you, you remember me? I'm like, I do, sort of. How you doing? You're, you know, you're not... Short anymore, you're really tall, that's great, that's cool. You're, oh, you graduated college, okay, awesome, great. And they said, I don't remember what you taught on. I'm like, okay, that's great. I don't remember the worship, awesome. I do remember the dodgeball, that was cool. And they said, but I remember when you, when you remembered my name. It's like, interesting. And it was from that moment on where we started to shift our youth ministry into something different, like, guys, You can have lights up but we're not gonna have this like disco dance rave thing happening. We're not gonna listen to Skrillex 24 seven. We're gonna get down to the honest, authentic gospel. And it started to shape and to form what was happening in these young people's lives. I don't take credit for that because it was a team that did it apart from what I was doing. And this reality has hit that in this post-Christian world, it comes as no surprise that the influence of Christianity in the United States is waning Rates of church attendance, religious affiliation, a belief in God, prayer, and Bible reading have been dropping for decades. This is not something new. So as believers, we are faced with two underlying questions. Has the church lost confidence in the gospel? And do we believe the gospel is good news for our society? Another statistic done by Barna says that Gen Z and millennials see the church as necessary but that there are too many hypocrites in it as well. Like, yikes, like, sorry, you know, like you need to apologize to the generation after you and I need to apologize to the generation after me because I'm sure that we have added to that hypocrisy. We might feel our society doesn't really need the gospel. Does the gospel have anything to offer? Have we outgrown Jesus? That's the question everyone's asking. And so we might see Western culture as a lost cause, so impervious to change and so morally degenerate that the only hope is for a swift end. And that's where the Christians come in and say, please, Lord, just let the rapture happen now, which is why I think I'm gonna be a little sandpaper right now why so many of us are obsessed with the end times. 9-11, rapture's coming. The Afghanistan thing, rapture is coming. This person who's got elected, rapture is coming, like rapture, 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 rapture. Always a rapture. It's always the end of the world. And it's this fascination and this fear at the same time. And it seems Christians in America are more concerned for a kingdom they, they can control or change than we are for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are at times ashamed of the gospel because we are trying to adjust this kingdom than the one God is trying to build. It's no wonder so many young people are leaving the church because they see more Christians concerned with the American dream than they are with the kingdom of God. If we are concerned with the kingdom of God, we will serve our enemies, we will welcome the poor, and we will love the marginalized. We know the church is not a sinking ship. We know it's not a time for us to form an alliance called a holy huddle where we just kind of sit in and like, okay, please, Lord Jesus, just come back now. And now. And, right, because Jesus, said, like, blinking of an eye, you're gonna see this, like, now. Now. Like, I remember as a kid reading that passage and my, my, my parents and my pastor talking about it. In the blinking of an eye, God's gonna come. It's like, наст, now, now. Like, you were so excited about the end of time because God was going to bring us to heaven for this thing, but we are not called to man the barricades and wait for the end of the world. We are not even called, dare I say, to defend what is left of cultural Christianity. The Jesus I follow doesn't get elected by people, And yet God is for the people more than anyone might think about any president at any point in time. Because God has more for you than the American dream has to offer. He has given you authority in his kingdom reality. So how can we remain faithful to our God in a world that rejects him? Is it even worth standing firm and obeying him when his kingdom often seems so far away? And we have to wonder if that's why many Christians have become more concerned with this kingdom than the kingdom God is king over. How can we live courageously and confidently in nations that do not seek to live under God's rule? We're going to discover that in the book of Daniel in these next few months. And is it possible, is it just possible that we can be a blessing to our nation and show the power and goodness of our God in such a time as ours? While God's promises of a king and a kingdom are clear and known, the hour of their complete fulfillment seems rather bleak like a figure in the distant shadows. However, if we look at the book of Daniel as a, as a piece of music, it would be impossible to read it without hearing the themes of a king and a kingdom prominently placed in its melody. This theme of Babylon and exile and salvation are woven throughout this book, yet we cannot limit the theme to only include the sovereignty of God as we would only focus in on the judgment awaiting. It is a connection between Daniel between the first coming of Christ, complete with his death and resurrection, but also a connection with the second coming of Christ when he comes to stay. And then thinking about Jeremiah 29, when you first think Jeremiah 29, maybe as a Christian, your mind goes to 11. Jeremiah 29, 11, right? And as much as we read that for ourselves, like, yes, God does have a plan for my life. Yay, that's so exciting and that's great. And I hope that you also hold true to that. What this also means is that those words, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You can hold to the principles of that promise, but it was to a people in exile. Jeremiah 29, 11 was for people in exile. Not for people who are wondering if, God was going to bless them. Yes, of course, God is going to bless you. We've talked about that before. We can never assume like God. Would you please bless me? As if that's something that He doesn't want to do, because He He wants to do that. He wants to bless you. He wants to give you this, but He also wants you to come to terms with reality that we might just maybe be living in exile, because that's where that verse has its power. It reminds us, oh, that's right, I'm living in exile but I know the plans that God has for me, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give me a future and a hope. Because that future is not a better America, that future is a kingdom that is not here, but it is coming soon. And it is a kingdom that you get to participate in and welcome people to participate in with you. There are people in this world that still need the gospel. And sometimes we think, well, the evangelism is up to the pastor or to the person who's eloquent with their words. No. The gospel is for everyone. The evangelism is for everyone. It is for your neighbor to know. It is for you to have that awkward conversation with them when you walk up to their door and they see you in a suit on a bike with a helmet. Oh, those are the Mormons, right? Is that the Mormons? I'm just kidding. But that's what's also weird about how people view that. When, when anyone comes to my door, Um, we live with my in-laws right now and they have the the ring doorbell and so you've got the the little noise, it's a little trigger. It's like when uh, Jim gives Dwight an Altoid and he keeps hitting the the, the mouse, if you've watched The Office before. Um, It's like that little noise trigger and it's like, oh, there's someone at the door and it's usually an Amazon package because that's where we get all our stuff. But there are other times when there's a salesman on a Segway of all things, I don't know why he's on a Segway, but he's there and he's like, hey, I wanna talk to you about solar. Oh, no thanks, You know, we're good, hey, we're good. Because immediately we're like, I don't wanna talk to the dude at the door, why? Because our house is our safe space. Our house is our sanctuary and we can't allow anyone into our sanctuary because then that might welcome them into like the authenticity of what truly happens behind this door. And yet that's exactly what God is calling us to as believers, that we would welcome people into our homes, around our tables, to have a conversation and to have a meal, to get to know your neighbor. And maybe that's the challenge we all need this week. Find someone in your neighborhood. Hey, would you, you know, my wife's a great cook. I'm not, she is bomb food, would you like to come over for food? And it's just the simplistic way of people not only hearing the gospel, but seeing the gospel in your life and in your family. A note to the youth. Um, This is something that God has placed on our heart. Obviously for 15 years, I did youth ministry. It's something near and dear to my heart. It's something that I don't want to do personally, because that's not what I've been called to. But we know that there are leaders here who have been called to that. And so in the next few months, we're gonna be shaping ways in which we can uh, start somewhat of a youth small group. We have our Wednesday nights that meets uh, once a month on the last Wednesday of every month. And that's something that we do as a church, as a prayer and night of worship. What started with five of us has turned into 25 of us. But what we're thinking about doing on those Wednesday nights is as the adults come together for that prayer and night of worship, that we're gonna create a space for the youth to have a spot here at the church as well, And so as we are young, as a church plant, bear with us because we've learned how to crawl. We're, walk, we're crawling a little bit further. And so we're starting to develop other needs and, and things like that. And so we want you to know that there's a place even for the youth of our church as well, for your friends at your schools to come and be a part of this. It's going to start slow, but we believe that as we can build momentum, as the church builds, we'll have an opportunity for that to happen as well. And we want it to do. We want. We want to do it authentically and honestly. And we want you to have a, a, a place where you feel like it's safe and secure. Sometimes this setting can feel overwhelming, but we want you to have a place with our leadership where you can have a spot as a as a Garden City Youth Ministry. That's weird saying that, but the whole reality is that we wanna reach you because we love you, we care about you, and you're the next generation. There are some young people in this room who could potentially be the pastor over this church in the future. If that's how God wills, then we will that, and we hope that, because we wanna see these young people, this Gen Z, rise up to the occasion and to allow the authentic, honest gospel to do something in their lives and to share with your friends. I mean, we had, uh, we had a, a 10-year-old invite one of her friends, no. or I think she's seven. She was seven and she invited her friend to a movie night and her friend came to the movie night and it was like, how did you do that? She's like, I just invited him. Like, hey, come to movie night. Okay. It's like, that's as easy as it gets for kids, you know? Like for adults, we overthink that. What if they don't like what I'm wearing? Oh my gosh, what if I'm sweating? What What if I don't say the right thing? What if I say something weird? Like, who cares? Like with childlike faith, approach the people around you and say, hey, you wanna have a meal? It's as easy as that. Take the opportunity to... Allow the gospel to be worked in your life that it might be worked into the lives of others around you. Would you pray with me? God, we we think on the events that happened in the book of Daniel. We look at the uh, reality of what's happening in our culture today, and we see a lot of similarities. But the one thing that Daniel was most encouraging about for us as believers as we hear it today is that it focuses in on the Messiah, that it focuses in on Jesus. And that's our desire as a church. You know our heart, Lord. You know our desire as a church is that people would come to find life and liberty in Jesus, that we as Christians would learn to love and lead like Jesus, and that we would call others to do the same.